0: Hello and welcome to the Insight by Oaktree Capital. I'm Anna Oak Oaktree's Senior Financial Writer, and today I'll be having two conversations related to Oaktree's recently published Performing Credit Quarterly, The Goldilocks Trap. We're going to be discussing some potential shifts in long and short-term macro trends that may have significant implications for credit investors. For my first conversation, I'm thrilled to be joined by the essay's co-authors, Armin Panosian, Oaktree's incoming co-CEO, and Danielle Polly, Assistant Portfolio Manager of Oaktree's Global Credit Strategy. Armin and Danielle, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you. Good
0: thanks. To great to be here. So, Armin, I'll start with you. What would you say is the key argument in this performing credit quarterly essay?
1: You know, Anna. We, as a, an economy, as a market, have benefited from huge tailwinds, both long and short-term tailwinds, for the last five years, 20 years, 40 years. And those tailwinds are now at best neutral and, frankly, maybe turning into headwinds. So what are those tailwinds that we're focused on? One is rates. The second is globalization, generally. The third is deregulation. And the fourth are just the benefits from stimulus and savings that came out of the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's take each of those independently. In terms of rates over the last 40 years, there really has been no larger contributor to wealth creation than ultra low rates or declining rates. And most investors in the market don't remember a time when rates were high or rising materially or were sustainably high for an extended period of time. I think today we could all agree that The conditions around rates are such that we probably won't see a 2,000 basis point decline in rates ever again, at least in our lifetimes. And we probably won't see material rate declines even in the next two, five years without some material economic issue that precipitates that type of rate decline. So rates, again, huge tailwind, now neutral at best, and maybe even a headwind if we do believe in a higher for longer environment. The second, globalization, obviously very huge trends since the 80s and 90s, helped to reduce the cost of goods and services globally. That helped to put a damper on inflation, helped to make a global economic growth story very sustained. But from COVID-19 and with some of the political issues, some of the geopolitical issues that we're seeing in the economy in 2023 and 2024, I think it's clear that that globalization trend is slowing or maybe turning in the other direction. There's more discussion about nearshoring, onshoring, or reshoring critical supply chains back to the U.S. or near to the U.S., or in other countries that are more directly tied to the U.S., and that's clearly a problem in terms of the long-term economic growth story for the world. The third, deregulation. After the global financial crisis, we did have some increased regulation in the Dodd-Frank regulations, but then during the Trump administration, there was an easing of banking regulations. Now, one might argue that some of that deregulation resulted in excessive risk-taking, and we saw the collapse of banks in 2023. So that deregulation that occurred during the Trump administration and maybe fueled some growth in the economy or access to capital... In the economy is now under a watchful eye and has a bright light on it. So that deregulation is heading in the other direction. And there are certain types of credit that banks used to provide that now they can no longer provide under new regulations. I don't think a week has gone by in the fourth quarter of 2023 or so far in the first quarter of 2024, where I have not heard the word Basel endgame. And that tells you something about the importance of this re-regulation. And that's going to be a material headwind. We're already seeing it in the market. And we're seeing investors and originators who used to have the ability to work with banks to provide them leverage no longer have access to that type of capital. The fourth was stimulus and savings. We had trillions of dollars of stimulus during COVID and following it in various types of spending bills. And we had an incredible amount of savings that got built up. You might recall that in late 2022, the market tenor was, we might see a recession in 2023 and rates need to decline in 2023. Obviously, that didn't play out. Why? Because there were these savings and the savings got spent. I think that as those savings have been whittled down over the course of 2023, we are now at that point where people have to be spending conscious again. So short and long-term tailwinds now shifting into neutral or negative headwinds.
0: Danielle, the piece includes a quote from our co-chairman, Howard Marks, that refers to Goldilocks thinking. That's very common right now in this environment that Armin is describing. Can you explain what this term means and why we're highlighting the risks associated with it?
2: Yes, Anna. Goldilocks thinking. The name comes from the children's tale of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, where Goldilocks prefers the porridge that's neither too hot nor too cold. It's just right. And this just right thinking seems to be the prevailing market narrative today. The U.S. economy is not going to be hot enough to increase inflation, but not cool enough to bring on an economic slowdown. So this type of sustained, moderate economic growth that's expected is going to then allow for a more market-friendly monetary policy, and hence the market's expectation that the Fed can begin cutting rates meaningfully without there being a recession or some other crisis. And this is something that we've called into question in our writing for many quarters in this publication. Now, some level of optimism is warranted. U.S. inflation has declined very rapidly. The economy has shown resiliency in certain pockets. But to borrow from another reference from Howard, investors should proceed with caution, given just how much of this Goldilocks thinking appears to be reflected in today's asset prices. So in the fourth quarter, there was a significant rally in both risk and duration. Equities were up double digits. Credit spends contracted. Treasury yields fell across the curve. And as Armin said, we're now facing an environment where short- and long-term tailwinds for the economy are weakening and, in some cases, becoming headwinds. And of course, too, we've seen over the past two years just how wrong market consensus can be, especially around rates. And generally, Goldilocks thinking creates high expectations among investors, and thus there's room for disappointment.
1: Yeah, and Anna, if I could add, the market isn't one person. The market is millions and millions of people, and thinking can often differ, and that's what creates the market. But with Goldilocks thinking, so many different types of thinkers in the market could find something to attach to and create a bull scenario around. So there are some market participants that are focused on rates and inflation, and they say, well, inflation is heading in the right direction, and it seems to be under control, and so that's great. That's great for the markets, and let's go buy, buy, buy. And then GDP-focused people, growth-oriented people say, well, what's good for the markets is really true economic growth over the medium to long term. And the news is that the economy is growing. Sure, the rate of growth is stable to slowing, but there really aren't material signs of a recession in our future. And in addition to that, those GDP-focused people say, if we are in this Goldilocks, not-too-cold, not-too-hot scenario, then there really isn't a reason... For the Fed to do something drastic, they don't need to raise rates all of a sudden. They don't need to do anything that would really cause a recession to occur. So, hey, you know what? Buy, buy, buy. Whether you're an inflation and rates-focused person or a GDP-focused person, you could find a headline here or there that could support a buy decision. And there really aren't that many people talking about what could go wrong. Is the market price to perfection? Can something go wrong, either in the rate camp or the GDP camp that could surprise to the downside.
0: In this piece, you both lay out three potential macro scenarios. Armin, can you begin by briefly walking through these and saying if you think one is more likely than the other?
1: Sure, I'm happy to start. The three scenarios, one is a soft landing or a no landing. Essentially, it means no recession, or if it looks like there might be a recession coming that the Fed has the ability, the tools needed to really head it off before it even becomes a recession. The second is a hard landing, which is frankly a shock, some sort of material shock to employment or to home prices, some material breaking of an important economic institution. And then the third is a soft-ish landing or a rolling recession. And what that is really is more of some industry-specific or mini-sector bouts of distress that cause underinvestment or unemployment in particular sectors, but not an economy-wide issue. I think that that's probably the most likely outcome here. I think the soft landing or no landing is probably where the market is. The market, big picture, says, well, while the GDP growth rate is slowing, it's still growing. Inflation is under control the soft landing folks also think that we have a lot of firepower in the Fed to be very quick to reduce rates. So if there is any sort of appearance of a recession, the Fed is going to act very, very quickly. Now, in terms of the soft landing rolling recession, or soft landing rolling recession, if it is true that inflation is under control, that GDP is growing at an acceptable rate, it's hard to paint the picture for a meaningful rate decline why would the Fed reduce rates materially if things in the economy are working just fine under the current rate environment? I've never gotten a really great answer for that other than, well, they want to prevent a recession. They don't want to be accused of causing a recession. But I think that the Fed will favor keeping rates higher than what people expect. And as a result certain rate-sensitive asset classes like real estate, like leverage buyouts, will have continued bouts of defaults and stress that will play out over a few years. Initially, it's through just dwindling cash flows. In a year or two or three, we're going to see in the corporate lending market the impact of the maturity wall. We're already experiencing the maturity wall in real estate. So, I would expect to see heightened default rates over the next few years relative to the last two, three, four years, and that will be sector-specific, rate-sensitive-specific markets because I cannot paint a credible picture without a material recession occurring for a material rate decline movement by the Fed.
2: Yeah, Armin, I agree with you, and I think that same concept can be applied across different sectors and industries. I look back and I think about U.S. housing probably being ground zero in 2023 with spiking mortgage rates, the 7% mortgage rate. That really depressed demand, and some consider that sector to have already gone through a recession. And then that same elevated cost of capital has impacted the technology sector, which had overexpanded amid remote work and work from home. And as those trends normalized, you saw layoffs and headlines and technology. I think some of the consumer sectors also have gotten Their taste of that, just with the challenges coming out of COVID, where supply chains were normalizing and inventory surpluses were growing and there needed to be drastic price cuts. And then, of course, just a shift in buying behavior from goods to services. And regional banks, now getting talked about again, but we did see some stress there with higher rates and regulations, as you talked about, Armin, earlier, and certainly the uncertainty of commercial real estate as a part of their portfolios. So I think all this said, we might continue to see softish landings in different sectors and this rolling trend go through the economy. But no one of those sectors is systemically important enough, at least not right now, to create a broad downturn.
0: Just to switch gears a little bit, one of the key insights that you highlight in the piece is the continuing attractiveness of high yield bonds. This asset class obviously had a significant rally in the late fourth quarter. Why do you think it still remains attractive relative to other types of credit?
2: I can start, and I know Armin will want to add here. But I think high expected return, high quality, high convexity, these are attractive traits for the asset class. So as you said, it did have significant rally. But if you look at the average yield to maturity for the asset class, it's still near 8%. And that's well above the 10-year average That's about 3% higher than what you can get in investment grade. Also, too, just the quality of the market is so much better. Around half the asset class is rated double B, the credit rating just below investment grade. And about 10%, 11%, triple C, the lowest tier. And that's compared favorably to prior years because we went through somewhat of a cleansing period during COVID where some of the worst companies fell out of that index through defaults. And there were also some fallen angels So it's a much higher quality market, and while certainly there may be some issues and maturity walls coming up, it's still a big enough market, too, where we can construct a portfolio with a handful of good issuers. And then also just in terms of convexity, you've still got bonds trading at a discount, which is not the same for leveraged loans. And we can talk about that market and compare the two, but I like the convexity. And if the Fed is to cut rates, high yield bonds is a way to get duration in a multi-asset portfolio. And so it's just another tool that we have in our toolkit.
1: I think Danielle said it well, I don't really have much to add other than what I would just say is. High-yield bonds is now, in 2024, 2023, the highest quality it has been in many, many years. And in comparison, other below-investment-grade asset classes, like leveraged loans, are probably the lowest quality they've been in many, many years. Now, the reason leveraged loans trade as high as they do is because base rates are so high that the coupon that you earn, the cash interest you earn on leveraged loans is higher than high-yield bonds in terms of a current yield. But I would argue that because we should expect higher defaults and higher losses in senior loans versus high-yield bonds and in senior loans versus their own history in terms of loss severities, that investors should view a portion of that excess return as compensation for losses that I'm about to receive or about to experience. I think on a comparative basis, high-yield bonds versus loans are very attractive. From a yield-to-maturity perspective, absolute return, especially for certain pension fund clients that historically have targeted 7 to 8% returns. It's a pretty good place to assemble a well-diversified portfolio that could weather a default experience quite well and generate some upside if for some reason rates do decline from here.
0: Armin, I'm going to stay with you for a moment. Uh, Another thing that's highlighted in the piece is related to the private credit opportunities being created currently by the pullback among banks that we've seen over the last year. And this includes opportunities in asset-backed finance. So can you speak a little bit more about this?
1: Yeah, it's a very exciting area. Historically, commercial banks were active in lending to consumers active in lending to small and medium-sized businesses. They would provide them pretty low-cost leverage for these originators to then lend to small and medium-sized businesses as well. So they provided lender finance, and they also directly financed borrowers. Now, with expected changes, especially following the collapse of banks in 2023, these types of loans are now receiving capital charges for the banks that often make it too punitive for them to continue to stay in those businesses. We do expect the commercial banks would be willing to lend to lenders on a super senior basis, and those lenders, those specialty lenders could then lend to small and medium-sized businesses. So we don't think that small and medium-sized businesses will have no access to capital, but their access to capital will be far more expensive, and their capabilities, their history, their equity requirements will all be more highly scrutinized because of this reduction in general market availability. Now, considering the size of that market, it creates an opportunity for investment managers that are able to originate and structure these types of loans, essentially to fill in where the banks are leaving. So a bank, historically, they might have lent at 80 to 85% loan to value in a certain asset class. Now, effectively, they might be able to do 30 to 50% loan to value. And that incremental capital that comes in will be able to get possibly Returns that are in the high single digits or low double digits, again, because of this disruption in access to capital. It's a massive market in the trillions. It's really even hard to know globally how big it is because there are so many industries that tap into asset-backed finance. For example, music royalties, life sciences royalties, consumer loans of a variety of types. Infrastructure lending can be structured in a way that is asset-based. There are aircraft loans, aircraft lessors, shipping, real estate of a variety of types, net lease. It is such a huge and diverse market. And the correlated factor is that the banks, due to regulation, are stepping back. In fact, the banks are looking for solutions from investment managers through the form of credit risk transfer trades or significant risk transfer trades, sometimes called SRTs, really to provide them the equity capital they need to survive these regulations. So the banks have shifted from being willing lenders, aggressive lenders in some instances, to needing investment managers to help fill the gap created by the regulatory shift that we are undergoing now and expected to undergo through 2024 and 2025.
0: The final theme that you both spotlight in the piece is risk related to the U.S. residential housing market. We obviously hear all the time about commercial real estate office, but can you speak a little bit about the current market dynamics in residential and why risk may be increasing here?
1: I'm happy to kick off, and I know Danielle referenced residential too, so I'm sure she'll add. Residential real estate is all about affordability. I mean, affordability is a function of employment and then the cost of borrowing. Now, employment has been relatively stable, and that's great, but cost of financing is materially higher today than what it was five years ago. Therefore, the affordability, especially for first-time home buyers, is quite weak. And the only reason that home prices have stayed stable and shockingly stable, from my perspective, is that the frequency of transactions, the desperate selling of a home, that in historic periods might have occurred during a recession or during periods of a lot of mobility, job mobility, that really hasn't occurred. So people that own a home, they say, I can't afford the next mortgage, so I'm just going to stay where I'm at. And maybe I'll even spend some money to build a new porch or a gazebo in the back or remodel a bathroom, but I cannot sell this home and buy a new one under the current rate environment and the current home price environment. As a result, home volumes, secondary trading volumes of homes, existing home sales in 2023 were down about 20% year over year. And again, it's because people can't afford the next home and employment has been fine. So there hasn't been a desperate need to sell. But people sell homes eventually because of death or default or changes in their personal status or family status. So, this 2023 event of depressed existing home sales volumes shouldn't be expected to be the norm over the course of several years. If you do go to historic levels of existing home sales in terms of volumes and you overlay the current rate environment, it will, I believe, result in some pressure on home prices. And that's going to be an important leading indicator to watch. The reason is consumers look at their homes as a savings plan. As their home values, as their neighbor's home sells for a 15 or 20% reduction because rates are higher, they then feel less wealthy or their access to lines of credit secured by their homes are less available. And they're not able to spend as much or unwilling to spend on that gazebo. I think that if there is a sudden decline in home prices because of even a moderate increase in the desire to sell a home, that could result in a crisis of confidence for consumers That could put pressure, recessionary pressure, on the economy.
2: I think you summed that up really well, Armin, the normalization that that market may see as natural life events may occur. I think there's also maybe even more of a case to make that you could see stress, just given what's happened since COVID. So many people moved during COVID, more than in prior years. Is so if you think about that relocation, perhaps taking advantage of more friendly, remote work policies, if those workers are called back, maybe that necessitates having to sell more homes than they would have otherwise. So I think possibly we could see other trends at play that maybe exacerbate what you're talking about. It'll be interesting to see what could cause it to have some cracks over the next few years. This environment
0: that you're both describing, it seems like there are a lot of these risks, but there's also so much optimism priced into markets, as you've described in the recently published piece. So, Danielle, I'll ask this to you. In this environment, what would you say it's
2: most important for multi-asset managers to keep in mind? I think all investors should keep in mind Howard's sea change and that the investment environment in the coming years is going to feature higher interest rates than we saw from 2009 to 2021. And there's consequences for that. Different strategies will perform than have in the past and a different asset allocation might be called for Now for multi-asset managers in particular, I think they stand to benefit more than traditional managers just given their ability to tactically allocate, especially among fixed and floating rate assets. So last year, multi-asset managers who skewed towards floating rate assets for the first nine months were rewarded as base rates marched higher and the income they received from their borrowers grew. But those that had fixed rate exposure or who added fixed rate exposure going into the end of the year really saw a benefit, too, to their portfolios. And while asset allocation is probably going to be a driver of performance, I don't think it's going to be the most significant driver And this applies more to managers broadly, but security selection has to be prioritized, I think, in all the scenarios that Armin and I have talked about today in order to avoid defaults. I think investment decisions that are based on bottom-up analysis of companies and securities and not macro forecasts, that usually proves to be the most effective way for avoiding defaults and achieving more long-term consistent performance. And so, Armin... Do you
0: have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with?
1: I think now, more than ever, is a time to not be complacent. and It's a time to proceed with caution. There is a lot to like about the market or the economy, and it's easy to forget about some of the risks that loom. Some of those risks that worry me are a persistently high-rate environment. If the indicators that so many people attach to as being positive for the markets, end up being correct, then there really isn't a reason for a significant rate decline to occur. Therefore, certain types of assets that are rate sensitive that have seen valuation appreciation over the last 5 to 40 years will deflate and losses will be incurred with or without a recession. Now, I cannot paint a picture for how we can avoid a recession and have meaningfully lower rates such that there isn't an asset bubble burst, especially when you overlay a couple of things. One, that the Fed does not have a mandate to defend asset prices. It also doesn't have a mandate to drive growth. It really is more about employment and it is about avoiding a recession. So you shouldn't expect the Fed to throw you a party in terms of defending asset values. The other is that the U.S. needs to print a lot of treasuries. I, for one, was surprised at how well the treasury auction went in October of 2023. And I think a lot of it is because of all this savings that had been swimming around the system and got deployed in 5% yielding treasuries. That feels pretty strong. Feels pretty good. But the non-U.S. buyers of treasuries that we had relied on for the last 15, 20 years are not really growing their U.S. treasury books. And so I worry that at some point there will be an exhaustion of the availability of those savings. Now, the Fed could choose at that point to flip to quantitative easing, and it could control the rate curve that way. But the point is that I don't think that the market or the economy is in such a condition that it will be able to help itself avoid a recession, keep rates low, avoid asset bubble bursting. I think something's going to break, and the Fed will have to do something to step in either through reducing the front end of the curve through rate cuts or doing quantitative easing for yield curve management. And investors should ask themselves, how do I feel about my portfolio under that scenario? That scenario where something surprises to the downside and the Fed has to do something maybe a little bit more severe in response. The Fed certainly has the tools to respond. And so it's not going to be, at least from my perspective, a massive global financial crisis type of condition. But to assume that the current Goldilocks scenario is just going to play out without any volatility, I think is completely incorrect. I think it's dangerous to do that with client capital. And it's, I think, more than ever important to be vigilant in that regard.
0: For our second conversation, we're going to spend a bit more time trying to make sense of today's economic environment. And we're going to consider what credit investors should be focusing on as these short and long-term trends are shifting. For this discussion, I'm excited to be joined by Wayne Dahl, co-portfolio manager of Oak Tree's Global Credit Strategy. Wayne, thank you so much for joining me.
3: Thank you for having me, Anna.
0: When you were on the podcast last year, one of the trends that we discussed was how noisy economic data has become since the pandemic and all of the challenges this has created for policymakers and investors. Before we discuss how things have changed, I'd like you to just briefly remind listeners what your key arguments were when we spoke in May.
3: Yeah, when we spoke in May of last year, one of the things that we discussed was the challenge in interpreting many economic variables that typically investors and policymakers may use when they make decisions. Things like jobs, things like consumer spending, inflation, house prices. A lot of those factors became distorted due to excessive stimulus, shifts in the labor market where a lot of people dropped out. They were slowly coming back. There was a shift from full-time to part-time. A lot of these things made it difficult to look at short-term moves and make a conclusion that maybe would have been valid prior to the COVID period.
0: Now, how would you say things have changed in recent months? Has the economic environment become a bit more legible?
3: Yeah, I think if you look at some of those factors, again, we can point to the job market as a big one because that monthly number is something that a lot of investors look at. And looking at some basic components of that job market, it does feel like things are a little bit more what we would call normal. Hours worked has declined, which can be seen as bad, but is probably at a number that kind of makes sense and is comparable to the pre-COVID period the number of workers that are working part-time has also somewhat normalized and maybe can become a better signal going forward. Those who have multiple jobs declined significantly following COVID and has slowly grown for a number of reasons, but is probably back to a level that is somewhat more normal. So maybe from the jobs perspective, we are entering a period where it will be easier to interpret that data. I think on the consumer spending side in 2023, a lot of people underestimated the excess savings that consumers still had given the post-COVID stimulus. And that really powered them through to a very strong year for spending. So I don't know exactly what that excess saving number looks like, but I'm sure we can all agree it's lower than it was a year ago. It may not have the same momentum in 2024 as it did in 2023.
0: Last year, as you say, we certainly did see a lot of strength in the economy. We also did see a lot of volatility in markets, especially in the rates market, which makes sense if you're having everyone expect one thing to happen and then something else happens. Now, if we're going into an environment where economic data, the trajectory of the Fed may be easier to understand. Do you think that this means we may see a little bit less volatility?
3: Yeah, I do think we could see less volatility. As you said, I mean, last year was marked by the beginning of the year with many investors expecting recession, rate cuts, inflation falling. They had to reset those expectations as the Fed continued to hike rates. But we're now several months away from the last rate hike. It does seem unlikely that more hikes will be in the future. So yes, I think now is a question of maybe when there is a rate cut and then how many rate cuts as opposed to will there be cuts or will there be hikes? So yeah, I I think the market generally probably has the direction right for 2024.
0: So in this environment where economic data is a little bit easier to understand, what would you say will be the biggest implications for credit markets?
3: I think one of the challenges for credit markets in 2023 until November and December was how much duration should I have in my portfolio. If I own fixed income and I own very long duration assets, then volatility was high, especially as interest rates moved higher and then came lower. If we expect maybe some cooling in the volatility around interest rates in particular, that should have a lower impact on longer-duration security, so maybe investors in credit will have an increased willingness to add duration to their portfolio going forward.
0: This discussion we're having about trying to better understand or read the economic environment makes me think of other historical moments when people in financial markets have been really sure about a macro trend and then all turned out to be wrong. There are obviously a lot of examples of this, but the one that really jumps out at me is the period after the global financial crisis, where we had really loose monetary policy and a lot of people thought it was going to lead to really high inflation, and then it didn't. I'd like you to compare that period and the one we just lived through and explain why the outcomes have been so different.
3: That definitely was an interesting time. As the Fed increased its balance sheet, many investors thought this would be something that would cause inflation. So expectations for future interest rates just rose and rose and rose. And instead, as Howard has just written about in his most recent memo, easy money, interest rates stayed low for a very, very, very long time, which stimulated a lot of capital activity. At the expense of savers and potentially more regular consumers whereas this time those people did receive money directly into their pockets and that money immediately found its way into the economy and oh surprise prices went higher and inflation went up and behaviors did have to change and we are still feeling some of that impact today through just the ultimate reset in prices People talk about inflation falling, and we're certainly happy that inflation is not running at seven, eight, nine percent anymore, but that doesn't mean the price you pay for things has actually declined. We're still sitting in an environment where in general prices are up almost 20% since the end of 2019. So that item that costs a dollar in 2019 now costs a dollar twenty, even with the level of inflation down. So that is a big difference and something that we are going to be living with probably for a while into the future.
0: It seems like one of the big differences you're pointing out here is the impact of fiscal stimulus, which we obviously saw far more of in the recent crisis compared to the GFC, as well as wage growth, which we also saw a lot more of this time around. Can you speak more about these fiscal dynamics and their impact on consumption?
3: Yeah, I think that is something that we really have to look at and wages certainly play a big part in that. And I do think wages were also an area that really did help the consumer in 2023 because you're right with that fiscal stimulus and the ultimate price increases that followed consumers from an income perspective actually fell behind right away following that. And it wasn't until really almost into 2023 that those incomes started to catch up again. And you can see that in some of the consumer behavior. If you look at a trailing 12-month of retail sales, they really did decline quickly once that consumer had negative real income. Once that turned positive again, not surprising, you saw that pickup come back again. So I think that is the one area to watch is can incomes continue to outpace or at least allow consumers to keep up with those higher prices that we're seeing.
0: That's really interesting because six months ago or so, you would have had higher wage growth, but because inflation was so high, obviously you're not having positive real wage growth. Whereas now, even though you may not have quite the same level of wage growth because inflation has followed so much, all of a sudden that actually maybe becomes more of a help to consumers.
3: A lot of these economic variables when it comes to the consumer are heavily correlated with their real incomes or their incomes after inflation. And you can see it in a lot of the sentiment indicators as well, and even something like the University of Michigan sentiment data, which we talked about last time, where some of the strange behavior there, especially if you look along political lines. One thing that's definitely happened is over the last several months, as those real incomes have gone up, those sentiment indicators, regardless of your party, have also both ticked higher. So I think from a consumer perspective, that is a big variable.
0: So we've been talking a little bit about some of the shorter term tailwinds that really boosted growth last year. What about some of the longer tailwinds, these trends that may be shifting? It's one of the things in Oaktree's recent Performing Credit Quarterly that we talk about things like also that Howard has talked about the shift in interest rates, changes in globalization. What would you say are some of the implications of the shifts in these longer-term trends for credit investors?
3: I think for credit investors, first and foremost, you are earning higher yields. When that base rate is higher, you're able to earn more income. And really, that is something that investors have not been able to do for a very long time. And again, referencing Howard's most recent memo on easy money, He talks about investors' necessity to shift into higher risk assets to earn the return that they either need or believe they need. And I think now as credit investors with that higher income, we can provide return to investors with really less risk than maybe straight equity investments or some less liquid investments or less understood investments. And that's really a better environment, I think, overall from a balance where not everybody has to be forced to go into riskier investments to earn a decent return.
0: Another thing when we're thinking about these potential shifts in longer term trends is that idea of being able to read the economy, not forecasting it, but just being able to figure out where are we now. So how does one do that at a time when there may be paradigm shifts happening?
3: that's definitely difficult. And I think the first thing that people need to remember is that there is a breakdown between looking at underlying fundamentals as opposed to forecasting some of these economic trends. And if you have a good idea for what some of these underlying fundamentals are by doing that work, then you can look at some of the macro variables and determine Are they in line with what I think makes sense from a fundamental standpoint, or are investors potentially missing a key variable? Howard recently wrote about cycles, something he's written a book on, and he did write in there that a lot of people think that cycles come by one event following another, but he went on to specifically say that Really, it's about one event causing another event, and you have to understand those causes. And I think that's something that is becoming a little bit more challenging today because, call it the paradigm or the environment of the last decade plus, is changing. Something as simple as, oh no, we have an inverted yield curve, or oh no, manufacturing data has declined, therefore a recession should follow. Well, those might be necessary conditions, but they aren't sufficient conditions. And we don't fully understand maybe what the causal relationships are today versus what they were in the past. And so, being willing to not jump to conclusions right away or try and extrapolate a broad theme from a simple or short-term set of data is something that I think we're going to have to do more often going forward.
0: We're obviously spending a lot of time talking about macro themes, but at True, we always like to say that we really focus on the fundamentals, bottom-up investors, but we also say that we're macro-aware. What does it mean to be macro-aware?
3: I think being macro-aware, first of all, means that you appreciate and want to understand the environment that you're investing in, that you know things like where does the broader market expect interest rates to go where does the broader market expect inflation to go? What are the expectations for job growth? Those are all important things to understand. But it doesn't mean that you have to have a model that forecasts any of those. You can learn a lot about each of those factors from bottom-up fundamental work. Speaking with companies, understanding how are they seeing margin pressure? How are they seeing wage pressure? Are they laying off? Are they hiring? Are they raising prices, using those two factors together is very helpful in investing. Not ever at Oaktree does Howard or our CIO Bruce Karsh come into an investment committee meeting and say, this is the expected path of interest rates, therefore we should invest like X. But that doesn't mean that in that same investment committee, we aren't discussing where the market thinks the path of interest rates are and how we're seeing the macro environment changing, which may agree or disagree with that. So It's not the number one variable that drives our investment decisions, but it certainly informs us when we're making those decisions.
0: One thing you said there that I think is really interesting is this idea that when people are trying to figure out where we are in a cycle or where we might be going, maybe by being more bottom up, by focusing on what's happening at the companies you're working with, you may have a slightly better idea of exactly where we are now because you're literally seeing what's happening on the ground.
3: Yeah, I think you're seeing that and also you're able to look and see what the market expects. Again, going back to that notion from Howard about causal relationships, you're seeing what the company is doing, you're seeing what the market thinks will be the outcome of those events like I said, sometimes you may agree, sometimes you may disagree. That can really help inform you where there could be pockets of value in the market because investors are potentially misinterpreting a simple piece of data that you have better insight on because you've done the bottom-up fundamental work.
0: Right. It's that something Howard says all the time, that it's not enough to know where price might go, it's where does the market think it might go and then in relation to that.
3: Absolutely. That really is a big part of, I think, our decision-making, how it relates to merging these, being macro-aware with the bottom-up fundamentals. I can't let you go without asking one of my
0: favorite questions, which is, are there any trends or risks that you think investors aren't paying enough attention to?
3: I think there's a couple of trends that I find interesting in the market today. One is a result of this significant shift from goods to services that we've seen over the last few years. And when we spoke almost a year ago, we were just at the maybe middle stages of that shift where during COVID, many people shifted to buying goods. Now they've shifted to buying services. But if we think about goods in the form of durable goods, those are expected to last between three to five years. Now that we're four years away from covid are we entering that period where that rotation back to goods will happen again? And right at a time when we think these poor manufacturing numbers or numbers around new orders might actually shift and start to move higher as a result of that rebuying or rotation through those durable goods. I think another one is related to inflation. When we look at inflation, it's very easy, and we've all done it, said, Well, if you take out the lagging variable of shelter costs, inflation is really at the Fed's target, at their 2%. And that's definitely true if you look at the real-time data. But the real-time data has also started to tick a little bit higher. And over the last few months, the data from the CPI or even PCE related to that real-time data is actually fairly close together. So. Are we at risk of maybe our inflation numbers never actually picking up this dip that we saw in shelter costs? And I'm not saying this will cause a significant spike in inflation, but could it alter maybe where we think that path will be over the next 6 to 12 months? And that could have implications for Fed policy, et cetera.
0: I think what you're saying there about shelter costs is really important because obviously shelter costs are a very significant component of core inflation
3: yes, shelter in the headline CPI data makes up about 35% of that number. And then when you actually go down to core, as you mentioned, that shelter component increases to about 44% of that number. So yes, when we see that headline number every month for CPI and core CPI, it is heavily dependent on what happens with that shelter component, which as I said, Many people have been waiting for that to drop, just given some of the other data that they can read in the market. Again, I think there's just a few little things that we almost end up taking for granted. We end up with expectations that events almost become a certainty. And I think that's one of the mistakes that we definitely want to avoid is understanding that at any given moment with any new piece of data, something could change. And that could be Based on the fundamentals with companies reporting or based on some of these macro variables that we've talked about, remaining flexible is key, I think, in investing in this environment or any environment.
0: Yeah, I think that ability to be intellectually nimble, I feel like it's something you honestly don't often see necessarily in this business because people get tied to a view and then there's that idea of, well can I change that view now or will that make me look bad as opposed to something Howard has quoted someone saying, when the facts change, my opinion changes.
3: Absolutely. Maybe that's one of the benefits of not forecasting and reacting to those is it does provide an easier way to pivot and change and realize I missed this or this variable changed. Therefore, as you said, my opinion has to change.
0: Great. Well, as my last question, I'll just ask, do you have any final thoughts on where we are now, what you're seeing in credit markets, what you're seeing in the macro economy?
3: Yeah, the economy is definitely on some pretty strong footing. I think it makes sense that investors would coalesce around this idea that we could have either no recession or maybe a mild recession It does seem likely that the Fed will ease interest rates. They're probably higher than they would like them to be. Inflation definitely has come down. And that should be a good environment for investors to earn these higher yields that credit investments provide today, as well as really reducing some of the default risk that would be underlying those credit investments. As we've stated many times, the advantage of a credit investment is you will earn the yield if you don't give it up to defaults. And despite the rally that we saw over the last quarter of 2023, we still have some pretty attractive potential returns in various pockets of the credit markets going forward. So I think there's a lot of room for optimism. But again, with this eye towards caution, given some of the factors that we've talked about that could be lurking in the shadows.
0: I think lurking in the shadows is a great note to end on. So Wayne, thanks again for coming on.
3: Thank you, Anna.
4: Notes and Disclaimers This recording and the information contained herein are for educational and informational purposes only and do not constitute and should not be construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities or related financial instruments. Responses to any inquiry that may involve the rendering of personalized investment advice or affecting or attempting to affect transactions and securities will not be made absent compliance with applicable laws or regulations, including broker-dealer, investment advisor, or applicable agent or representative registration requirements, or applicable exemptions or exclusions therefrom. This recording, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, posted, transmitted, distributed, disseminated, or disclosed, in whole or in part, to any other person in any way without the prior written consent of Oaktree Capital Management LP, together with its affiliates, Oaktree. By accepting this document, you agree that you will comply with these restrictions and acknowledge that your compliance is a material inducement to Oaktree providing this document to you. This recording contains information and views as of the date indicated and such information and views are subject to change without notice. Oaktree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oaktree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed, that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is the potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performance is based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oaktree believes that such information is accurate and that the sources from which it has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. Moreover, independent third-party sources cited in these materials are not making any representations or warranties regarding any information attributed to them and shall have no liability in connection with the use of such information in these materials. Copyright 2023, Oaktree Capital Management, LP. Audiation